We're picking up this morning in Matthew chapter 22. Uh, you may remember, I try to mention this uh, every time that I read from the New King James translation. Sometimes I also mention the King James. And if you hear me referred to, as I've said many times in the past, if you hear me referred to Max Patterson, uh, that's the only commentary. When I refer to commentary, that's the only one I refer to, uh, at least for this study. And so, uh, but when I say Brother Patterson or Brother Max says this, that's what I'm talking about. Okay, so Matthew chapter 22. In this section, the parable of the wedding feast can also be found in Luke chapter 14, uh, verses 15 through 24. Um, and so as we look at uh, this section here, this this is the parable of the wedding feast. A fly flying around here. I'm trying to get out of my face here. Uh, but in verses 1 through about verse 14, you have the parable of the wedding feast in Luke's account, or in Matthew's account, rather. Um, some refer to this as the parable of the wedding of the king's son. Uh, the same idea, the parable of the wedding feast, is what I've always had it referred to it as. So let's read through this, and we'll make some comments as we go through this. You know, after we read through it, we'll come back and make some comments. First one, Matthew 22. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son, and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted calf, my fatted, my oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore go to the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out, out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came, came, in, to, came to, in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his servants, Bind him head and foot, take him away, and cast him into our darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So that's the parable of the wedding feast, Matthew 22, 1 through 14. Now, let's go back and look through this uh, a little bit closer. We found here in verse 1, he says, He spoke to them again by parables. This was not the first one which Christ had, had, had spoke of them. Uh, in some ways, this parable is like the householder who planted a vineyard, as we've talked about previously. Uh, verse 2 says, The kingdom of heaven, here Christ speaking, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. Now, I don't I don't recall everything that a person says in here, but this sounds an awful lot like Christ and the church. The church being his bridegroom, uh, Christ being the groom, obviously, and the person who arranged this wedding was God. Uh, that's how I. That's one. That's what I think about while I read through this. Now, other commentators may say, may say something similar or different. Uh, I don't, I'm not familiar with what Brother Patterson says here. I haven't committed his material to memory, uh, nor do I intend to. Um, but um, that's what I think of here. The King of Heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. 
uh, and, his, and he sent out his servants to all those who were invited to the wedding, and, and they were not willing to come. Here I think I'm mindful of uh, the apostles and the prophets who went out, the prophets in the Old Testament prophesied about the coming of Christ, the apostles in the New Testament, uh, particularly uh, John the Baptizer, uh, the, the disciple of, of Christ, uh, and uh, our learner of him, uh, who would not really survive very long after Christ came to, came to the earth, as we know he was beheaded. Uh, but he was one who prepared the way for Christ. And here, what I'm mindful of is someone who prepared prepared people to come to this wedding. Well, they were not willing to come. Now think about those who Christ has called but uh, through the gospel, but were not willing to obey, not willing to listen, not willing to do that which is good and pleasing in the sight of God. And so for that reason, they did not come. They made light of it, verse 5, uh, and went their ways, one to his own farm and other to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But what happened to the apostles? They were treated horribly. The disciples were treated horribly. Uh, the prophets of old were treated horribly. And so that sounds an awful lot like them. Uh, Christ also is the same one who tells us that uh, how often he wanted to gather together. Uh, when he talks about Jerusalem, he said, how often when he gathered them together as a hen gathers his chicks under his, under her wings, but you were not willing. Uh, same idea here. Uh, they were not willing to listen. Instead, they treated them spitefully and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious and sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Now, this is a reference to me, at least in my mind, of the judgments going to come. Uh Brother Patterson says here, this might be an allusion to the destruction of Jerusalem, but more importantly, it indicates a judgment upon those who reject God and his son. Uh, that's how I apply it. It's a, it. God handles those who and punishes those who reject him and his son. Uh, verse 8, then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Uh, but the Patterson says here, how sad to reject such an opportunity, but today people do it all the time. Their attitude, as well as their actions, was what made them not worthy. Again, uh, why were they not worthy? Because they were not willing to listen. They were not willing to obey the gospel message. They were not willing to obey what God was was trying to get them to do, trying to get them to get to heaven, right? Um, well, they were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. Now, notice there he says to invite them. He doesn't say that they're immediately uh, accepted because we know that when someone uh, when someone becomes a Christian, they don't stay. They become a different person. Now, when we read here in verse uh, verse nine and ten, some might say, "See, everyone can can everyone gets to go to heaven. No, no, no one goes to hell." That's not what we're talking about here because we're going to notice here a change does indeed take place. Let's continue to read here. Therefore, go to the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those who went in, went, and those servants went out to the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now they were filled with guests. Now, what, what were those guests now wearing? Look at verse 11. But when the king came to the seat of guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. That implies everyone else had on a wedding garment. A wedding garment symbolizes obedience to the gospel. And so we find here that those individuals who were both bad and good, verse 10, had obeyed the gospel. Thus, they had on this wedding garment. We know that we are clothed in Christ at baptism. We become a new creature in Christ. And so we find here, verse 11, this idea of this wedding garment, which is, the idea of this garment is also mentioned in the book of Revelation. Uh, those who, who had washed their garments in, in the blood of the Lamb, and they became white as snow, you know, that type of thing. 
that it is their lives have been cleansed in the blood of Christ, showing obedience to the gospel. The same idea here in verse 11. Uh, those who held this wedding garment had obeyed the gospel. Verse 12, so he said to him, said to him, friend, how did you come in here? Because in verse 11, the idea here is a guest who didn't have on a wedding garment. He said, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless, meaning there was he, he didn't belong and he knew so. There's nothing he could do about it. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. They'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, don't be mistaken. Christ's illustrating point is if there's someone able to slip in to heaven who has no business being there, no. What we find here is that the only people who get to go into the wedding feast, the only people who can get to go to heaven are those who have on this wedding garment. Those are the only ones who are pleasing the sight of God because those who have the wedding garment were able to stay. Verse 11. Uh, verse 12, this man did not have one on. What happened? He was cast out. Uh, cast him, uh, take him away and cast him and cast him into outer darkness. Verse 13, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse 14, for many are called, but few are chosen. Now, many are called by the gospel, many hear the gospel message, but few are chosen because why? Because they have not obeyed the gospel. Uh, those who are chosen are those who have heard the word of God and have obeyed it. They have been chosen, those individuals have been chosen by God to have heaven as their home. So, why are few chosen? Because few have obeyed. Therefore, few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. Now, looking at verse. Uh, 15 in Matthew chapter 22 verses 15 and going through verse uh, I have here about verse 15 going through to about verse 22 uh, and the heading uh, Brother Patterson has here is the Pharisees seek to entangle Jesus over paying taxes. Uh, I think that's a good way to put it. Entangle him because the Pharisees were always trying to get to trip Christ up. Um, they were always, you know, whenever Christ was speaking uh, somewhere publicly, he was not, they, these individuals were not far behind. Uh, they were those who were there who were trying to, to trap him, to, to tangle him, to try to do, make it appear as if he is doing something wrong, which they could not do. Uh, they accused him of blasphemy, but all he, the reason they did that was because he said he was a son of God, um, which was not incorrect, obviously. Uh, but this next section, verses 15 through 22, in Matthew 22 can also be found in Mark 12, 13 through 17, and Luke 20, 20 through 26. Uh, so let's read verses 15 through 22, and then we'll come back and look at it a little more closely. Matthew 22, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are that you are true, and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone if you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar, Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Okay, so is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? That's the question they're going to ask him. Now, notice that the Pharisees, they give him, first of all, in verse 16, it's a false compliment. As one brother called it, we call those things sometimes a backhanded compliment. Um, 
you know, they say they say one thing, but the, but it's really not. It's not genuine, or it's really meant to uh, try to uh, insult you in some way. Uh, so look at verse sixteen. And they said to him, and they said to him, sent to him rather their disciples with the Herodians. Uh, so the Pharisees went and plotted out how they might tickle him in his talk, verse 15, and they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians. So they, the, the Pharisees sent their disciples, their learners, and, and the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true. <laughs> you know he's true. Really. I like it's an odd statement, do you? And teach the way of God in truth. Are they really being honest? I don't think any of what they're, I mean, what they're saying is not is, is correct, but they don't really mean what they're saying. They're just, it's just word vomit. You know, they're just, you know, teacher, we know that you are true. We know that you teach a way of truth. And you don't, you know, you don't show partiality. Oh, by the way, we have a question for you. Um, I'm sure they didn't say it quite like that, but that's kind of how it sounds, isn't it? Because it's not genuine. They're there to trap him. Look at verse 15, how they might entangle him. They're there to try to entangle Christ. They didn't mean anything they just said in verse 16. How can you mean any of those things and then turn around and try to do what they were attempting to do? But nonetheless, verse 16, they say, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. That phrase, nor do you care about anyone, meaning he treats everybody the same. It doesn't matter if you're rich, poor, the color of your skin, your nationality, he treats everybody the same. Um, well, you know, that's, that's a good reminder for us today, isn't it? Verse 17, tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, first of all, notice this. They don't say, what do the scriptures say? They say, what do you think? Verse 17, right? What do you think? You know, you ever have someone ask you a question sometimes, and they say, well, what do you believe about this? And I caution others, and, and I encourage us to don't answer with, I believe. Instead, answer with, well, the Bible says, because it, our belief, it should be in line with the Word of God. And so we should we should try our very best not to say, sometimes it comes out and it's, you know, we say, well, I believe in it. What we, what we mean in our mind is, I believe the Bible teaches. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, but instead, we should say, work hard where we don't say, I believe so much. Instead, we start saying more and more what the Bible says and, and then explain, right? But yet in verse 17, they say, what do you think? And the question is, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Taxes has always been a stumbling block for people. Um, money in general, giving money to government, uh, whether by force or uh, you know, by force, which is taxes, it really is giving money to government by force because <laughs> uh, you can't get out of it, right? Uh, we are saying it's necessary. We say sometimes a necessary evil. Um Taxes aren't always, I mean, let's be clear. Taxes are used for things that the Christian does not approve of. But taxes also are used for other things as well. Uh, in theory, they wouldn't be used to support evil. You think about where our taxes go today, and it has, so much of it has nothing to do with government. Uh, you know, it goes to support things that are of moral, have moral things or have moral implications and not to schools, not to roads and, and bridges, uh, not to um, uh, parks and recreation uh, parks, you know, state parks, not to things. That, and there's other things as well that, you know, 
uh, have to go into that. But you think about it, where does Planned Parenthood come in with taxes? Why do, do government funds go to that? And that could go on and on and on. So do taxes go, do, or do taxes support things that a Christian doesn't, is not in favor of? Yes, they do. And if we're honest, no matter where we go, if we go out shopping somewhere, we're probably going to visit a store who also gives their money to charities that we would not be in favor of. Uh, and so we have to do the very best we can. We understand that. Uh, we, we, uh, and we found here, you know, what you think Caesar used taxes for things that were evil? <laughs> probably. He was Caesar. <laughs> These guys were crazy. Uh, I'm sure their taxes, you know, they would, they would increase taxes to have things like the Coliseum built where they would have, you know, Christians, you know, go against wild animals and gladiators and things like that. Uh, their taxes went to that. But no, nonetheless, notice here what he says here. What do you think? Is it lawful to pay, to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Verse 18. Now, to me, this, in course, I mean, what, what else would you expect? But verse 18 and following is some of the most brilliant, brilliant ways to handle people like this. Because Christ <laughs> goes back to the idea of oh, whose pictures down here, you know. Look at verse 18. But Jesus perceived their wickedness, right? That's something sometimes we can't do. We, we Sometimes we get what people are trying to say and trying to imply. Christ did every single time. He perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? That is a big slam. He's saying you're being hypocrite. You're being a hypocrite. You know the answer. He knows they're there to try to entangle him. He says, Why do you test me? He says, Show me the tax money. So they brought him to Nair. So they didn't stop and say, you're right, you know, uh, we shouldn't be testing you, you know, this is not right, you know, please forgive us. No. <laughs> and no, he says, show me the tax money. And their response is, okay, here's the Nairs. They just kept right on going. It's just, whoop, they called him hypocrite, and they didn't stop, and they didn't say, okay, Lord, we're sorry. No, no. Um, so he says, show me the tax money. So they brought him Daenerys. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? That is a genius move. Genius. Look at verse 21. So they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, which he's implying money. And to God, the things that are God's. Well, what are the things that are God's? The righteous people. Righteous people belong to God. And righteous people, what do we give to God? A, we give our lives to Him, a, a living sacrifice, holy and presentable to God, which is our reasonable service, as uh, Paul reminds us there, I believe in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. And so he sa says, what do you render to Caesar? The things are Caesar's. And what's he talking about? Money. He says in verse 22, the Bible says in verse 22, when they heard, his, when they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Uh, what does he say? Pay your taxes. Uh, it, is, it is a lawful thing to do. Um, it also implies here that even though our taxes are used in a way that we may not approve of, it doesn't mean that we are okay with it. Uh, there's a lot of things in this world that happen. You know, if, if that is the case, that means that because we live in this world or live in this country, we must approve everything that our country does. No, we don't. And some would say, well, I don't approve everything here, you know. And, and if we go to the point of saying, well, if you pay taxes, you must approve what the government does. Then you also can say, well, if you live in the United States, you must approve everything that, that we do here as well as a, whole, as a whole. It doesn't work that way. 
Um, you know, I think about Paul, it tells us, you know, we have to live in the world, we don't have to be of the world. That is, we have to live around people, we have to deal with things like this. It doesn't mean that we have to be okay with it. Um, it doesn't mean that we, that we uh, should not speak against it, because we should. We should speak and preach against those things which our country does, which is not good. And there's plenty of material there. Um, looking next at Matthew chapter uh, 22, verses excuse me, verses 23 through 33, you have the Sadducees uh, ask about the resurrection. Uh, but a person has a heading, what about marriage and the resurrection? And to me, this whole section, um, to me, it's just silly. Not in the sense that it's silly that that Christ is talking about. It's silly. What silly is what the Sadducees are trying to do. It's it's ridiculous. This story they give, and to me, it reminds me a lot about people today who say, "Well, if baptism is necessary, what happens if you know there's no water nearby, and that person dies? What's going to happen? The Lord's going to take care of that. The Lord is a righteous judge. There's a reason why we call him a righteous judge, right? Uh, but let's be honest." I can't think of one time a situation where someone who was going who wanted to be baptized and they were they weren't able to do so, you know maybe, maybe they had to get, travel somewhere to get to water where it may be. I can't think of some of some scenario where someone died in a way to being baptized. You hear people say all these little stories, right? Well, what if this and this happened? Okay, but well, what if someone died halfway through the sinner's prayer? <gasps> uh oh, you know I mean it's ridiculous, and so. I mean, the same, the same things can be flipped around to people. But what we hear today a lot as members of the church, well, what happens if someone dies or they're baptized? The Lord will take care of them. The Lord will deal with it. He's a righteous judge. Who are we to say what's, what's going to happen? You know, the Lord sort it out. Is that going to try to speculate all day long? Why? The Lord will take care of that. Um, does that mean we shouldn't be baptized? No, it doesn't. Uh, we still want to be those who obey God. And so these little scenarios, they're not, they, they do nothing but sow strife. That's what they're meant to do. And here in Matthew 22, I think the same thing. This is just meant to sow strife. And, and to here, it's meant to entangle Christ in some way. Look at verse 23 in Matthew 22. The same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies, having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring, offspring for his brother. That's correct, right? Uh, now, therefore, or now there were with us seven brothers. The first died, and after he had married, having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Why are you worrying about such things, first of all? Really? That's, this is what you're worried about? Well, why are they worrying about the resurrection? Why are they asking this question about the resurrection? Well, because first of all, I'll point out, remember, the these people do not believe in the resurrection. And so what are they trying to do? They're just trying to make Christ look bad. Jesus answered and said to them, You're mistaken. Not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. <laughs> what would you expect from Christ? More, anything less than just straight to the point of, of this is a blunt, this is a pretty clear way of saying, you have no idea what you're talking about. That's what Christ is saying in verse 29. You have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, verse 30, he says, for in the resurrection, 
They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven, meaning that no one's married when they're in, when they're in heaven. That's what he's talking about. But, but concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So what did he do? He told them, basically, you don't know what you're talking about. And he said, there's no marriage in heaven. And then what did he do? He, he rebuked them about their, about their false belief of the resurrection, because they believe there is no resurrection. So Christ rebuked them, taught them, and, and also showed, uh, he rebuked them, he corrected their, their false idea, and then he also uh, taught them, uh, again, a sharp rebuke concerning uh, the resurrection in general, uh, because they they do not believe there is a they do not believe there is a resurrection. Um, so we also learned there there is no marriage in heaven. Well, heaven is a spiritual place. Heaven is a spiritual place. It's not a physical place. Um, marriage is a physical relationship. Uh, we also know, however, that man that we will recognize one another in heaven. Uh, we talk about. Uh, I'm trying to think. There was one, I think, I think it's a parable of Richmond and Lazarus. Sometimes we use to talk about how they will recognize one another. Uh, meaning that, that when you're in these places, you're not going to be just there and not know what's going on. No. Um, the rich man very much is aware and conscious of where he was. Uh, Lazarus, no doubt, was conscious and aware, aware of where he was. Um, so, this idea of, of no marriage in heaven is because marriage is based on the physical, uh, not, no, I shouldn't say based on the physical. It is at least partly physical. I should say, I don't want to talk about just relations. I mean, it's a physical thing. Uh, you know, I don't know if you might say, yeah, we're married, but you know, we're, it's, you know, it's not, we never come together. We never do this, that, and the other. The point I'm making is marriage is not, has no place in a, in a, in a spiritual place. And so that's what we find here. It's, it's, here it is, the only marriage bond we find is, of course, is Christ and the church, right? The faithful. And so there is no marriage in heaven. He says, we are, we are like angels of God in heaven. Uh, and then he rebukes him and, and concerned their false belief about being no resurrection. Um, the next section we have here, verses 34 uh, through, see, I have this going through, excuse me, verse 40. Which is the greatest commandment? Uh, and so we're going to look at this, and then we're probably going to stop there because that's going to be just about the end of our time here. Um, because the last few verses, forty-one through forty-six, um, I don't want to look. I don't want to just give just a few moments of that and stop. And so we're we're going to stop before that and leave that section for next week. So let's look at Matthew twenty-two thirty-four through forty. This can also be found in Mark 12, 28 through 34, and Luke 10, 25 through 28. Here the Bible says, beginning in verse 34, When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, and saying, Teacher, what, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to them, you shall, love your, you shall love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, we find in verse, 30, verse 34, what do these guys do? The Bible says, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they get it together, meaning, now it's our turn, right? I'm like, okay, we'll take care of this. 
really. Then one of them, a lawyer. So we, we would presume a lawyer is a highly educated person, right? Asking me a question, testing him and saying, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Well, verse 37 and verse 38 is just like what Christ, just, it's just like what Christ says. You get everything in these two verses. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And so he says, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 37 through 39. And what do you get? Everything hinges on these principles. That's what he's talking about there in verse 40. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Um, But the passage says here, hang means these two commandments are based and summed up by the law and the prophets. Uh, these two concepts are the sum and substance of religion. He says all means more literally the whole law. He says here proper love comprehends the whole of what religion is all about, and the whole of religion is rooted and grounded in these two great command these two great commands. The answer of Jesus is so complete that the lawyer even admitted that the, the answer is not only the truth, but is better than all burnt offerings and sacrifices, and that's found in Mark twelve thirty two through thirty three. So I'm going to flip over just a second. Mark 12, 32 through 33, he says, So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, he has spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the with all the heart, with all the all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than a whole burnt than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. He's saying, You're right. You're exactly right. And that's there in Mark uh, 12, 32 and 33. And so what does the lawyer say? You're right. This is, what else can you say? He says, you're right. This is, it's all summed up in this. And that's what Christ is saying. It's all summed up and love your Lord with God with all you have, basically. And that you love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, we're going to stop there this morning. I do thank you for being here with me this morning. Hope you enjoyed this uh, program. Uh, we will have this uh online very soon uh, or we'll have the audio version of this on Bobway media very soon we do thank you for tuning in this morning again if you haven't uh, done so if you're on facebook you can join the bible stage with russ facebook group uh, you can also watch this video not only in that group but also on youtube as well and if you go to our website uligofcfc.org you can subscribe to our weekly bible study reminder and that way you can be reminded of the upcoming bible study so I do thank you for being here with me this week. Hope you enjoyed this program and hope to see you again next time.